Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In today's episode, we're going to focus on the intersection of race, technology, and policy. First, we hear from members of the Disinfo Defense League, which calls itself a network of intersectional organizations fighting disinformation that affects communities of color, about the League's new policy platform. And second, I speak with two researchers at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Center for Information Technology and Public Life about the need for social media platforms to adopt race-conscious policies. First, we turn our attention to the Disinfo Defense League. If you've been paying attention to the problem of disinformation, you know that it is a particular problem in communities of color, which are targeted by a variety of actors seeking to sow disinformation and utilize the deep cleavages in this country over race to make political gains at the expense of historically oppressed black and brown communities. Just in the past couple of years, you may have heard stories like these. Black and Latino voters are being flooded with disinformation in the final days of the election. Voting rights groups say these tactics echo Russian social media manipulation four years ago, but today's campaigns are even more widespread. From the wrong election date on Twitter to fake robocalls. If you vote by mail, your personal information will be part of a public database. Experts are now sounding the alarm about digital disinformation aimed squarely at black and Latino voters. In the black community, one of the primary deterrents of people getting vaccinated has been misinformation. Last week during a press briefing, the White House acknowledged a group of 12 online vaccine protesters that they claim are responsible for 65% of anti-vaccine information posted on social media. The primary group impacted by this misinformation has been the black community. There is concerted misinformation targeting the African-American community, playing up historical and present-day racism and linking it to anti-vaccine rhetoric. It's really shameful. It's basically using one historical injustice to perpetrate another. In response to this growing problem, in 2020, a group of more than 230 civil society groups banded together to form the Disinfo Defense League, or DDL. DDL is a distributed national network of organizers, researchers, and disinformation experts confronting what they call the, quote, racialized disinformation infrastructure and campaigns that deliberately target Black, Latinx, Asian American, Pacific Islander, and other communities of color. DDL was created by and for these communities and is supported by services and insight provided by expert partners and organizations. This month, DDL launched its first policy platform, which you can find at disinfodefenseleague.org. The League is, quote, calling for policymakers to enact a strategic set of solutions to quell disinformation and build a media ecosystem that serves the public interest by promoting accurate news and information, protecting civil and human rights, and fostering an informed, equitable electorate across all languages, unquote. I caught up with three of the League's organizers, Carmen Scarato, Suhair Addy, and Jacqueline Mason. Carmen Scarato, Associate Legal Director and Senior Counsel at Free Press. Suhair Addy, Program Manager at the Media Democracy Fund, working on the Disinfo Defense. Jacqueline Mason, a Director of Programs at Media Democracy Fund and also working at the Disinfo Defense League. 
very first question I have to ask, of course, is is simply what is the Desinfo Defense League uh, for the listener who may not know what it is? So I will talk a little bit about the Disinfo Defense League. Uh, we recently launched publicly uh, last month, but what the league is, is a distributed network of grassroots and community-based organizations. Um, and we're a collective uh, fighting disinformation and surveillance campaigns that deliberately target Black, Latinx, Asian American, Indigenous people, along with other communities of color. Uh, we were launched in 2020. Basically, what we do is use coordinated strategy, uh, different training efforts, and research to support our member organization. Tell me a little bit about who these member organizations are. Who, who, who is part of the league? So DDL is a bunch of grassroots and grass tops organizations from across the country. Folks working in civil rights and communications, different sorts of organizations, whether it's local or national, but coordinating together to figure out how best to combat disinformation and the di- different disinformation narratives that are coming across in their communities. So give me a few examples of who are the types of organizations that are participating. The folks that we work with closely and those who we work with on the policy platform um, are groups like Asian Americans Advancing Justice, People's Action, uh, Media Justice, United We Dream, Ultraviolet, Free Press, of course, Kairos, and New Georgia Project. You know, one of the things I think I've I've found watching the trajectory for DDL is it's one of multiple types of entities that have emerged around the world to battle disinformation. You know, it's been a response that's kind of uh, changed and morphed and evolved over a period of several years, um, certainly since since 2016. And the concerns about disinformation really spiked after after that election here in the United States and after Brexit in the UK. So I, I don't know, I kind of want to ask you a, a little bit about what have you learned or what has the what has informed the creation of this league? What is it doing that is different from the way that these groups were responding to disinformation five years ago. Right. So, you know, the DDL was launched in 2020, right? And, you know, thinking about that election. And we realized it's really a multi-pronged approach to fighting disinformation, right? Media literacy is fine, but we also, obviously, with the policy platform, what we can do legislatively, what we can do within different issues areas, right? Right now we work on different issue-based working groups, um, Asian American disinformation, uh, grassroots disinformation, um, immigration is a very important thing, um, you know, as a wedge issue in language is something that we've seen, you know, with Francis Haugen, how important to see um, that how disinformation spreads in in Spanish and, and, and countless other languages, right? So I think that that's something that's really important that we're, you know, very focused on, you know, looking at the disinformation that really affects black and uh, brown communities, you know? Um, so I think that that sets us apart. It's also this idea where information was kind of race neutral <laughs> for a really long time. And the idea around disinformation, there wasn't taken into account the race forward aspect of the work that we do. So we're really here to challenge kind of this race neutral approach to mis and disinformation and understanding that communities who are you know, communities of color, the way that information spreads is different. And a lot of times folks were saying, you know, look at the platforms, how's it spreading on these different like social media platforms, but it's also how's it spreading offline. And that's the way that it kind of sticks is that people to people kind of trust that is built. And when you are, you know, at a quinceanera or at a barber shop or at a family barbecue or dinners that are happening over the holidays, like that's where it's gonna really take hold. And that's kind of the way that we think about the ways that disinformation is spreading and how do we combat it is within that sort of context. 
to what Sue Hare's point is, you know what I mean? That we realize that, you know, how most of these narratives that are proliferating, especially racially, are recently are racially motivated. So we have defined, you know, racialized disinformation um, within the league. And we define that in a few different ways. Um, You know, the disinformation that really targets communities of color are trying to weaken our movements and suppress our vote. Um, and anything false or misleading intended to uh, defame our movements for racial justice and human rights and disinfo aimed at driving wedge issues between communities of color. Um, so defining it that way has given us that race forward approach. Yeah. And one of the things you know that we did here with the DDL policy platform is take a step back and really examine what are the dangers of disinformation and these other algorithmically driven harms. And you know, we started looking at sort of the core of these business models and the data that's being collected about us, our personal information, demographic, our behavioral data, and how that is shared and processed. Because that really, what what that's doing is creating this digital identity of us all. And And that digital identity can be used against us to either target us or to exclude us from opportunities. So, you know, as we were examining this, we see that it's really important that we address the ways digital technologies are disproportionately impacting diverse communities, and especially how technologies and the opaque algorithms that drive them are designed in ways that undermine our civil rights, our privacy, and our democracy. So let's talk a little bit about this legislative agenda, which you've just released, and uh, and talk about some of the specifics, because I count sort of nine bullets for legislative action, and then some executive action you're also seeking. And so can you kind of take me through some of the highlights Absolutely. So we want to say that this is really a launching pad. So we just want to start mitigating the harms. And the policy platform was created to provide, as you said, like legislative and regulatory proposals that center the rights and the needs of historically oppressed communities. So when we look at the policy platform, I would say that there's three large categories. And the first one is how do we protect privacy and civil rights? And that is part of our legislative proposals here, which is we think that Congress needs to limit the collection and use of our data. They need to provide requirements around transparency about the information that's being collected, how it is being used, and how it is being shared with data brokers, um, as well as requiring independent and routine audits that address bias in both in a risk assessment and in impact assessments, and also to just prevent uh, discrimination by algorithms. We know that data is feeding these powerful algorithms and that impact all sorts of economic opportunities in employment, housing, and lending. And we also think it's critical for researchers to have access to this data because we need to understand, you know, the litany of harm so we can actually have some solutions on the table. The second large category is the role that federal agencies and the government can play. And here we focused on the Federal Trade Commission DOJ, and the White House, and how they can coordinate efforts to address unfair and deceptive data practices. And I really want to focus here specifically on the Federal Trade Commission because they have a critical role to play. And just recently, they actually initiated a pre-rule notice about Section 18 rulemaking on privacy and commercial surveillance. And I think that is a really promising step. In the, the blurb that's online, it said it's there to curb lax security practices to limit privacy abuses, and to ensure that algorithmic-driven decision-making does not result in unlawful discrimination. So I think, you know, this, this is already moving forward, and I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to build a record of the harms 
um, that we're seeing and that are often exacerbated by the commercial data practices and the surveillance economy. The other thing I want to note here that's that I just happened this week is that the National Telecommunications and Information Administration had a series of listening sessions uh, to address privacy, equity, and civil rights. And that's going to be followed with a request for comment in the coming year. And they've already want to address what are the needs for policies and protections that we need around our data, because we know that we need that in order to reduce these data-driven harms um, and the disparate treatment of marginalized and underserved communities. So the, and then the final bucket and the final category is really taking actually a global perspective on the problem of disinformation. And that asks the UN to examine the harms of disinformation on a global scale, because we know that narratives, yes, are being weaponized here in the United States, but we really need to take a global um, analysis of this to really start stemming the tide of disinformation and the harms to our communities. So one thing I want the listener to understand if they're not able to go and read this document, which you can do, of course, and I would recommend that everyone do that. We'll post a link on uh, Tech Policy Press, or you can find it at disinfodefenseleague.org. There's really no provision in here for any kinds of limitation on speech or any specific recommendation around content per se. That's right, because we know that it's really data that's fueling these harms and the collection of our data and the way that it's used to target us. And that's why we really focus again at the core of these business models and what's really important here. Um, and when it comes to speech in particular and content moderation, you know, we were seeing the harms that were resulting from a lack of content moderation when it came to non-English languages this past year. And it was especially bad in Spanish language as we were looking at English posts that were getting removed. And the ones that were just the same exact narrative in Spanish kept staying up. And this was election disinformation. It was COVID disinformation. So we, we do acknowledge that there are asymmetries in the way that these platforms are enforcing their standards across languages. And we know that these systems are being built with inequities at their core. So that's, again, why we're really focusing on data privacy and on protecting people's civil rights. You know, sometimes when you see these types of policy proposals around disinformation or related topics, there are legislative proposals, executive proposals, and then also demands of the platforms. I don't see those in this particular policy platform. Is there a reason that you you chose not to address the platforms? So at Free Press, we do also have Change the Terms, which is another coalition that is directed at the companies and it's a, you know, our corporate accountability campaigns. And we have a lot of similar concepts in there, like transparency, equitable enforcement um, of their policies. But what we've noticed with our you know, multiple interactions with the companies, with the dozens of emails that we've exchanged, with just what's happened in Congress over the last few years, is that the platforms aren't policing themselves. They're not able to do that. And that's why we think that it's necessary to have legislative and regulatory proposals on the table to really hold them accountable for the harms that they're causing. You've come together and in what I assume was, you know, a feat of being able to organize the interests of all of these different organizations. 35 of the organizations that have signed onto this policy platform are listed on the site. And so folks can see that they have a very wide array of interests and constituencies 
what do they do together in the league? What, what is it that you're kind of bringing them together to do? How, how do they kind of communicate with one another? A lot of the work that the groups that come into DDL do is a lot of strategy and figuring out how best to work together and kind of lean into this idea of being a league. So we use that term very intentionally. It's to really kind of allow groups to not necessarily try to build consensus, which a lot of coalitions tend to try to spend a lot of time on, but to actually think about how best to utilize each and every group organization's own individual um, strengths to kind of work together and create a solution to these different issues. We know that disinformation impacts everyone. It impacts different groups a little differently, but ultimately it's the tactics that are being used that we want to come up with some sort of co-created strategy to really um, resolve and to stop. So that's kind of the way that we bring groups together, allow folks with, with trainings and different kinds of speaker series, um, and then space to really strategize and figure out what, what's the best way to combat this information spreading within communities, online and offline. So in some way, you're sort of giving some of these groups that may not be expert on disinformation, maybe conceptual frameworks or, or ideas about how to contend with disinfo? We do different initiatives, such as train the trainer, right? We have thinking about monitoring, right? Um, keywords that may be affecting the communities, right? And we, what we really look to is for people on the ground to tell us what they're seeing and what they're hearing, right? Um, and then we uh, use our in-network expertise. And, you know, we work with Dr. Joan Donovan. We also work with other experts and in journalism to really like, you know, get a sense of, you know, how this mis and disinformation may be spreading and what folks can do to prevent it. Um, so those type of different initiatives. And as I mentioned earlier, kind of the issue-based initiatives are really important as we think about wedge, wedge issues leading up to uh, the next election. I think that that's a really good example. The policy platform launched last week and already we've been to Congress. Our co-CEO, Jessica Gonzalez, uh, testified in the Senate in a hearing about dangerous uh, or disrupting dangerous algorithms. And that was something that was included in her testimony. And she explained how the Disinfo Defense League's policy platform is something that can disrupt these dangerous algorithms. And we also actually submitted a letter for the record for that hearing that multiple organizations signed. So there are just going to be opportunities to you know, engage with Congress. There's going to be opportunities to engage with agencies like the Federal Trade Commission, like the NTIA in the coming years. So that's why we really wanted to lay the foundation with this policy platform. I guess one thing I want to circle back on, too, is I really want to highlight the harms. You know what I mean? All of these kind of narratives of, you know, that of a stolen election, right, revolve around Black people voted, immigrants illegally voted, right? Um, and that's something that really is, I mean, disinformation is dangerous to all, but really dangerous to uh, people of color as we look to see voter suppression bills popping up, right? And using these online excuses that proliferated in groups like Stop the Steal um, long after, right? And even thinking about COVID mis and disinformation, how, you know, um, black and brown people were less likely to get accurate information and more false information on Facebook. Uh, so I think it's just really, when we talk about harms and we talk about, you know, like obviously the, the policy platform, we're really thinking about protecting our communities. It's very important. You've given a couple of examples there of you know, particular harms, election disinformation, COVID disinformation. Is there another example of some specific campaign that maybe you saw pop across multiple of your groups that sort of bubbled up that became a problem for the league? Um, I would have to say that CRT um, was really, I think, overwhelming for folks. You know what I mean? It was just the scale 
of that problem and the way in which it quickly proliferated and how it was weaponized by the right, you know, that was a hard time, you know, so coming together, you know, in our office hours, that's another thing we do. We do uh, biweekly office hours with folks where, again, Dr. Joan Donovan will come and, and, and experts from First Draft and uh, Reframe will think about narrative strategy, think about how to combat, you know, these sorts of narratives in real time. Um, but I think that's probably the most recent example of really thinking about what our strategy is going to be going into 2022. The policy platform really came from the groups that really wanted to see something like this and engage in this sense. And even though it's a lot of like, we work with a lot of grassroots organizations, a lot of organizing that, you know, these groups do. And maybe policy is not the first thing they think of when they think of like systemic change. And so when a lot of things were happening post-election and it became a talking point, you know, across the aisle in Congress that people wanted to say, you know, disinformation, this is an issue, this is something we want to work on, um, or platform accountability or what have you. It was the groups that kind of came together and said, well, what, where, where's our voice in this? And knowing that we work with communities of color, we really wanted to center those who've been historically left out of policy making, making decisions and have been harmed by technology and use this as a place to really discuss, like Carmen said, the remedies to the harms and also create a starting point to envision what an internet could be that allows communities to thrive. The way the internet is set up now, right, is like in this idea based on users and, you know, we're users of the platform and the, the platform uses us to make more money, right? Like that's the, that's this kind of relationship that's created, whether or not it's com- completely aware to the folks on either side, but it, it is this transactional relationship that is exploited by the business models on these platforms. So the question then becomes, can we envision like a world or create a world even where the internet is a tool that we can use, one of many in our toolbox, organizing being another tool, right? to allow for communities of color and everyone to thrive and can we get to a place that we know that we can that we can do that and how do we do that and i'll highlight something too when it comes to disinformation i think one of the most dangerous features of it is that it's intended to disrupt and it's it, its intention is to actually make people not believe facts anymore and the way that the platforms operate what you see, what I see, what anyone sees is very different. And so it makes it very hard for people to get access to accurate information. And so when it comes to the policy platform, there is something that we have in there um, that I didn't mention, which is to tax uh, the online advertising revenue of the digital platforms. And to really, and that very small tax can actually fund an endowment and fund non-commercial and local journalism. Because what's happening with disinformation in particular, and I was going back to the data and the targeting, is that these are hyper-local narratives that we're targeted with. And so one of the antidotes to that is to have more local journalism and to have it in a way that it's serving people of color and non-English speakers and other minority groups. And I also think, you know, this is a second point that it's a unique element of this platform is that when we talk about these solutions and enforcement practices, we think that it needs to be done equitably across all languages. And, you know, because again, I mentioned this, we are seeing seeing how the platforms are failing to provide resources to keep these linguistically diverse communities safe. So I want to note that because I think it, again, it is a unique element that we bring. What's next for this platform? What will you do in 2022? Well, I mentioned this earlier, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities in the regulatory space to engage uh, with these grassroots organizations 
and to really bring to the federal government a sort of a, a record of the harms and connecting those harms to what, you know, to the data practices of these platforms, to the commercial surveillance practices, and really saying that, you know, these are data-driven harms and the government does have a role to play here. And so I just see there's so many opportunities already opening up in 2022, as well as legislative proposals. You know, that is something that, you know, Congress is still coming up with ideas of how to address these algorithmically driven harms. And we will have, you know, ability to, to engage in the conversation. And we have something now that is a blueprint for policymakers and regulators. Disinformation isn't something that's new, right? And this is something that, you know, it, at Free Press, we have an essay, Media 2070 Project. And we looked at the history of the media, of newspapers, radio, broadcast, and the dehumanization and criminalization that happened of Black people through those narratives. When it comes to social media platforms in particular, they're really just a continuation of that. But they're also different, right? Because of the amount of data that's being collected about us, because of how targeted these disinformation narratives are. And, and I think that's why we want to examine the harms and actually know, you know, understand what is happening, why we want researchers to access this information, why we're asking Congress for some transparency requirements because we don't want these platforms to hide behind these opaque algorithms when we know that these harms are being amplified and exacerbated through the platforms. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Now on to part two of the show. Social media platform policies play a key role in mediating the types of problems that the folks at the Disinfo Defense League contend with. But racism is just as pervasive online as it is offline. This week, writing in Tech Policy Press... Daniel Kreese, Bridget Barrett, and Madhavi Reddy, researchers at the Center for Information Technology and Public Life at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, made an affirmative argument for race-conscious as opposed to colorblind platform policies in all areas that relate to institutional politics. I got to speak to Daniel and Madhavi about their proposals and what platforms can do to better protect historically oppressed communities and preserve democracy. Madhavi Reddy, UNC Chapel Hill, Hussman School of Journalism and Media, PhD candidate, and a graduate research fellow with CTAP, Center for Information Technology and Public Life. So Daniel Kreese, I'm a professor in the Hussman School of Journalism and Media, also a principal researcher at the UNC Center for Information Technology and Public Life. So I was very pleased this week to get the opportunity to publish this piece from you, The Need for Race-Conscious Platform Policies to Protect civic life. Um, and I'd love to just know generally what the impetus for it was, uh, where you started, uh, and then let's get into some of the details. What sort of first put the seed in our minds of this was when we were watching the waning weeks of the 2020 election. 
uh, unfold. A number of different platforms did things like ban political advertising entirely. Facebook stopped accepting new ads for some particular period. Google limited uh, the targeting that was available for political advertising. And these were like very abstract principles. And being somebody who's been around practitioners for a long time, that sort of troubled me a little bit because I knew all the different ways that that might have downstream consequences that weren't quite thought about. For instance, oftentimes campaigns oppose disinformation by running paid communications. Oftentimes it's the most powerful politicians like Donald Trump who actually don't really need political advertising because every time they post something, that captures all the attention in the public sphere. Fast forward really over the ensuing year, as we were sort of thinking and talking more about this, um, there were other things that came sort of down the pike. Facebook made decisions to ban ads that were targeted by things like race and sexual orientation and and religion. And while sort of in the abstract, that like kind of makes sense, we thought about like, well, why would that be problematic, right? And one thing we kept coming back to was the fact that like, well, the the same ad policies that might prevent things like, let's say, a candidate appealing to people with the most racist views, for instance, were also preventing groups like the NAACP from reaching hard to mobilize voters, right? That abstract principle was actually what might be working against that values of promoting democratic inclusion or democratic equality. So it's a very long-winded way of sort of answering your question. I'm glad you can edit this. But uh, in general, it sort of it emerged from us trying to think through, like, what's the problem with abstraction, right? What are all the ways in which sometimes abstraction might actually work against the values um, that platforms often say they want to promote, such as an inclusive democracy? This project also speaks to broader questions that we see in the world around the way race operates in in American society and the impacts it has. Uh, For example, we had written a paper um, that was published in the summer of 2021 on this concept of identity propaganda, which kind of talks about strategic exploitations of subordinate identities in relation to existing power structures for political gain or to maintain and or to maintain uh, social orders. And so just seeing broadly these patterns of how race operates in America in, and how racism op- operates in covert ways uh, to adopt what Eduardo Bonilla Silva writes about in his book, Colorblind Racism. This is something that was really important. How, how does covert racism or colorblindness operate on platforms? How does it operate in propagandist content that uh, we see during presidential elections and things like that? So let's spend a minute on that, on the idea of a colorblind ideology. Uh, Just for the listener, how would you define that? What does that mean? I think a simple way to think about this concept is when people say, I don't see color, we know that that's impossible because there are studies, and I can't cite one right now, but there are studies that show that within just six months of our existence on earth, we can already identify a difference in people. So there's no way that we can say, I don't see color. As we grow up, we sort of internalize unconsciously or consciously certain biases about different people that shape the way we view them upon first impression. These then get embedded into our everyday actions and interactions in our lives. So that could be talking to your neighbor, that could be the way in which you as a journalist 
write about a politician of color or a politician who's a woman or a sports commentator talks about uh, an athlete of color. So you can do all these things without even saying the word race, without even calling attention to race, because you're operating on this, you're avoiding racial terminology and operating on this playing field of I don't see color. And so this is a huge problem in our world that not enough people talk about and not enough people acknowledge about themselves. And so bringing these conversations to the fore, I think is really, really important in all spaces. You know, one thing that we often saw where colorblindness reveals itself most concretely when it comes to platforms and their content moderation policies is it's the privileging of abstraction. And when you privilege abstraction, this idea that, you know, if we're going to treat everyone equally, right, that's going to be the fairest way to do things. In privileging abstraction, sometimes it takes us away from the recognition um, that Madhavi is highlighting here, which is people are disproportionately affected by certain things and certain groups of people suffer disproportionate harms for, for certain things. And particularly in, in what was the subject of this report, in the context of things like voting and civic participation, right? People of color in the United States have long been the disproportionate targets of things like voter suppression efforts, right? So if you don't account for the fact that certain forms of content has unequal differences and unequal prevalence, right? Then you're not promoting social equality. Instead, you're just promoting this abstractness um, that in the end, because it's abstract, relates to treating people based on groups, right, unfairly. So you see this ideology, this uh, way of thinking, this colorblindness, affecting itself across social media platform policies. Uh, can you talk about some examples of, of how it might express itself? One of the very interesting um, sort of real world examples of this that just came out as part of the Facebook papers were all the ways that uh, in December 2020, Facebook updated its hate speech algorithm where it started to prioritize things like detecting anti-Black comments over anti-White comments, right? So, and this actually came about as a, as a result of Facebook's internal research um, that was showing that color blindness at the level of the algorithm was failing to actually catch the far more prevalent and more virulent set of harms that were being directed at black users of the, of the platform. And then when Facebook made this change, uh, Senator Hawley basically said that, well, Facebook is now moving away from neutrality and right, embracing critical race theory, right? So that was a great example of color blindness. But I think what that really captured in that move were Facebook researchers making the internal argument that said, if we treat things like algorithmic detection of hate speech in a colorblind way, that means that people of color are going to be disproportionately affected by hate speech. And therefore we need a race conscious policy um, that will help us understand and police, right? The worst abuses of the platform. Another really great example, and one of the really positive things I think to come out of what we're looking at is that a lot of hate speech policies in particular now are expressly race conscious uh, as a result of certain work that platforms have done over the years. And what we mean by race conscious here are their policies that either explicitly mention particular racial groups, right? So that basically say, 
um, that in a policy around hate speech, given historical inequalities and given who was historically the target of things like hate speech, we need to be very clear that not all hate speech is alike, um, that certain groups are going to be disproportionately affected by it and disproportionately harmed by it, right? The other thing could be reference to existing things like racial, social hierarchies, or specifically vulnerable populations. And here is that even if you're not going to name specific groups, a race conscious policy would say, we're not going to treat every population equally, that some groups are going to be a priority that are going to receive priority when it comes to content moderation, because they are historically vulnerable in particular societies. So, uh, you know, a great example of this uh, would be, you know, Facebook's hate speech policy, which talks about, and I quote, um, we prohibit the use of harmful stereotypes, which we define as dehumanizing comparisons that have historically been used to attack, intimidate, or exclude specific groups, and that are often linked with offline violence. What's key there is that they're definitely highlighting the historical vulnerability right, of who is the target of, of hate speech. And it's a great example of a race conscious policy that's applied there uh, in the context of their hate speech content moderation. And one of the things that's also important to think about is that there are ways in which people who intend to promote this kind of content can work around, even if a policy is race conscious, they can still work around it. One of the things that one of the codes people use is culture. So they'll use the word culture as a substitute for race. And so this is also something that content moderators want to keep thinking about. How does, how does um, cultural difference get exploited in these, in these settings? One of the cool things about the reaction to this piece is that people really love the table that we included <laughs> um, because the table illustrates a few different things, right? Uh, on one level, it basically shows that like not all platforms are alike. In fact, there's a wide variation in platform approaches to things like colorblind or hate speech policies. And I should back up and uh, say real, real briefly is that what we did when we looked at these policies, we sort of singled out four areas that relate to institutional politics. Those four areas are civic integrity. So this is their uh, explicit election related material as well as census material, hate speech, and then we broke political advertising into two separate buckets. One is political advertising content, and then one is political advertising targeting. So content is what's actually in an ad, whether that's a visual or whether that's, um, that's words or graphics, whatever else that is. Targeting is what groups of people are advertisers looking to deliver a message to, right? So the first big sort of thing, the first big finding was, well, different platforms have different policies and there's quite a lot of variation. Um, in general, there is more consensus around things like hate speech and political advertising content. In part content because it, it also falls under their hate speech rules. So a lot of the platforms sort of across the board treat hate speech and political advertising content in a race conscious way that explicitly mentions particular groups or mentions protecting especially vulnerable groups or accounting for a history of vulnerability, right? Another thing that the table though illustrates is that from there, we kind of have lots of different approaches. Facebook, for instance, has a colorblind civic integrity policy. So they treat all attempts at things like um, potential voter suppression equally, right? Without making reference to the fact that 
let's take an example in the U.S., Black Americans in particular have long been the targets for voter um, voter suppression efforts, as well as other people of color. So they don't make no distinction there um, between content that's meant to harm uh, white people using Facebook or black people using Facebook. And then political advertising targeting on Facebook is actually colorblind as well. That leads us to the opening example that we sort of talked about. Well, that means then that efforts, let's say, to mobilize uh, voters, uh, particularly voters of color, would be treated the same as, let's say, potential speech that's meant to make you know, racist appeals to whites uh, about why they should turn out to um, back an anti-immigration candidate, something like that. Um, another thing that we found, too, is that some platforms just don't have policies at all. Um, so Reddit doesn't have a civic integrity policy. Snapchat doesn't have a political advertising targeting policy. Um, so it, there's a lot of variation, not only across the platforms that we looked at, but also within their policies in these areas, internally to them, there's a lot of variation as well. And I'll just say, uh, looking at the chart, uh, Snapchat, call your office, you uh, appear to have uh, perhaps one way of reading this would be to say uh, the, the, the kind of worst performance on, on if you're applying this particular lens to platform policies. Yeah, for sure. And, and I should also say, I mean, all of this comes with like two big caveats, right? The first is, this really grew out of our research over the last few years where we were looking to catalog the policies that these platforms have in a number of different dimensions that relate in some way to institutional electoral politics. Justin, you know this, how hard it is to find what policies are in a clear and systematic way, in a way that accounts for changes and when they were made. None of the platforms do this very well. Some do it better than others. But it's always it's always a challenge to actually catalog all these policies and systematically analyze them. The second thing that I guess that I would say too is that a an important limitation of this is enforcement, right? So, and this is exactly why the Facebook papers have been so uh, so key in lifting a veil on what goes on behind the scenes, right? So, like that's a great example of how Facebook made an enforcement decision independent of its policy, right? So they changed their algorithm at that moment to police comments in, in different ways. What's key about that is that we don't really have good enforcement data. So it could be that these policies are on the books and maybe they're colorblind, for instance, but internally, Facebook actually is being more aggressive going after something like, you know, voter suppression efforts directed at Black Americans. We just don't know. And I think that that's a big challenge. There's very limited transparency when it comes to how these policies are actually acted upon. My biggest challenge would be on the civic integrity category, right? I mean, there you've seen throughout the course of the U.S.'s history, right, very clearly that some groups are the repeated, right? The repeated targets of voter suppression efforts. Some of my colleagues here at the Center for Information Technology and Public Life, like Dean Prelon, has also shown things like Russian-backed mis- and disinformation also targeting uh, voters of color in the US. So you see this repeatedly. And I think one thing that was really just very striking to us was the fact that none of these civic integrity policies that we found, so Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, or YouTube, expressly mentioned right this history and ways in which these policies should sort of 
account for that history when it comes to how these platforms were approaching content moderation. So to me, I, I think that was the clearest. I, I think another example, you know, potentially is like to just keep sort of looping back around this, you know, this irony of something like targeting. I think that one big challenge that I have is that when you have, when you fail to distinguish between things like targeting available, because it is this abstract principles, right? then you're really taking away a lot of the pro-democratic uses of platforms that they should be embracing, right? So like saying that you're not going to be able to target voters in political contexts based on their race and ethnicity, again, might sound great in the abstract, but in practice, that often means that those people who are hardest to mobilize, especially given the historical context of voter suppression in the U.S., are also the very ones that pro-democratic campaigns can't be running advertising to in order to turn them out at the polls. So your abstract policy actually hurts democratic inclusion, it hurts democratic participation, and ultimately it, it hurts equality. And this speaks to the larger issue in society and in culture broadly. I mean, sociologists have consistently pointed out in various studies the inability for people to talk about race or the, just the discomfort, um, especially in white communities, to, to mention it. it. It is either naturalized, it's associated with culture, like I was talking about earlier, um, it's minimized. So the fact that platforms are unable to think in these lines or, un, or unable to talk about policies in this way is a reflection of the larger societal problem that we have, that is an avoidance of being able to talk about race head on. You do tick off a couple of examples of race-conscious approaches to platform policies against these these areas. Give the listener a sense of a couple of those. Yeah, so um, so so a few of the things that we you know came up with as as being potential ideas um, beyond the existing race-conscious ways that policies are already formulated. So one thing that we propose is that advertising content policies could require additional review for content that relates in some ways to historically discriminated against populations, let's say in the weeks before an election. Now, what's important about this is that if you provided this, what we propose as an extra scrutiny standard, you're not saying that advertising is not allowed, right? But what you are saying is that any advertising that relates in some ways to people who have been historically discriminated against, historically suppressed from their civic participation, we're then going to put that through an additional review to make sure that advertising is being used in a pro-democratic way, right? Um, And I think it's important to pause at this moment and say that, like, yes, that requires more resources. Yes, that means that that it doesn't scale so much because in every country you're going to have to have a deep understanding of that country's history. But we also think it's part of platform civic obligation, right? That if they're going to be involved and play such an infrastructural role in election processes, they also have a responsibility, right, to ensure that their platforms are furthering democracy and not hindering democracy. A second idea that we had was that any advertising that was targeting historically discriminated against populations undergo under uh, extra scrutiny. And again, this goes back to the example that we talked about before. It's not like targeting based on race and ethnicity on its face is what's problematic, right? It's targeting based on race and ethnicity in ways that's meant to limit 
these groups' participation in democratic processes, that's what's problematic. That requires a review that's more interpretive, right? Everything that Madhavi said earlier on, like you need to, to appreciate nuance. You need to understand context. But surely we can discriminate, right, between, let's say, an effort designed to register and mobilize Black voters uh, during the course of a presidential election from one that targets right, uh, Black voters and says, your vote's not going to be counted, therefore don't turn out on election day. There's a massive difference there. And I think every platform should be expected to make that distinction because I don't think it's that hard. And I don't think it's that unreasonable to expect platforms to make that, that qualitative distinction. A third would be platforms apply greater scrutiny to accounts, right? that have a history of disseminating speech that targets racial or ethnic minorities or other historically vulnerable populations, right? And one of the suggestions we had is, is something that a colleague and I, Mike Annity, suggested in the run-up to the 2020 election, which is that certain accounts, such as the president's account, um, that was repeatedly violating things like civic integrity policies, um, that before they post, there's a time delay that comes into play there. Um, and again, it would require platforms to be more proactive, um, to not just necessarily take down content after the fact, after it's gone halfway around the world and already done its harm, but to actually say, we're going to actually provide an expedited review and pay extra scrutiny to these accounts because they're known violators of certain policies over time. What's interesting is that, you know, that seemed like very radical at the time to put an account like the president's on a, on a time delay. But yet in the wake of January 6th and 7th, um, seems and the subsequent deplatforming of Trump seems like the far more reasonable option that actually could have headed off some of the more uh, the more democratically destructive sort of uses of social media platforms by the president running up to the you know attempted coup on the sixth. You make reference to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 as, as kind of an inspiration for this, and you know I am struck by the fact that in many ways we're of course moving backwards on voter protections that were codified in law in this country, unfortunately. And across the country, we're seeing laws that are actually springing up to you know, injure people's right to vote in many, many states. How do you think about, I don't know, these changes in relation to, to that trend? Or uh, you're almost kind of, I don't know, a- asking the, the platforms to do something that we would have we hoped that perhaps uh, the states would continue to do to recognize these historic harms. Let me zoom out to the 50,000 foot view and, and then invite Madhavi in as well. So I think broadly, we have to account for the fact that we are at a crisis moment in American democracy. Full stop. I mean, a crisis moment. So the public is reliant on a number of different gatekeepers to try to protect democratic institutions. Foremost among them is that the public has right to hold politicians accountable at the ballot box, that the public has a right to the peaceful transfer of power, and that the public has a right to participate in democratic processes without people trying to rob them of their their voice through illegitimate means. They didn't want to play this role, but platforms are now in this role of being gatekeepers helping to safeguard these basic democratic freedoms and rights that we all have in this country. And I think what's really key here and and why your question is so good, Justin, is because 
it tells us that platform action now to protect democracy is even more important because what we're seeing across the country is the radicalization of one major party in a two-party system, a party that is no longer committed to playing by the rules of the game, to enforcing democratic fairness, and to embracing the peaceful transfer of power based on predetermined rules uh, of the vote and of electoral institutions. In that environment, we're reliant on Facebook and Google and Twitter and other platforms to help play the role of being gatekeepers. And I think that's what makes race consciousness here so key. We, of course, have seen the rolling back of the Voting Rights Act. We've seen the rolling back of a number of different protections um, around things like electoral participation. Facebook's not gonna solve that problem, just like they're not, it, the company's not responsible for that problem. But they do have a responsibility, like we all do, to do everything they can to try to protect democratic institutions and, pr and try to create robust civic participation as much as possible and to promote democratic uh, participation. So um, I think in answer to your question, I would say is that basically they're being thrust into this role. They're, they're obviously not state legislatures. They're not passing laws. Um, however, what they can do is ensure that on their platform, that political speech is gonna be used to further democratic ends and democratic participation and not foreclose it. Yeah, and to that point, and an extension of that point, these are the places, platforms are the places where people get the majority of their information. And so whether or not this is a responsibility that they want to take on, this is the reality of the situation. People get their news off of platforms. People get information about voting off of platforms. So this is just the way things are. These are the reasons why they have to put in that extra work of being race conscious. So just to finish up, I want to ask you what's next for both of you in your research. Um, Daniel, I know this connects to you know a larger project and set of priorities uh, for you. Uh, Madhavi, I, I don't know your work, work as well, but please tell me what's next. I'm actually exploring questions of race in entertainment media uh, specifically. I'm looking at entertainment media um, that is about second generation immigrants by second generation immigrant content creators. So the overlap here are questions of identity and race and representation uh, to this work, thinking about what does it mean to tell a story about second generation immigrants in a certain way? How does it maybe reify that immigrant population's space on America's racial hierarchy? These are some of the similar questions that we ask in our work at CTAP. Um, so that's what I've been working on for, the, for this year. And you're part of launching a global network too, Madhavi, right? Of like researchers that are taking up these questions and like disinformation. That, that's no small thing. So I want you to trumpet that a little bit. Yes, yes. Um, I'm part of a group of some amazing Asian American media scholars. And we're sort of thinking about the ways in which research on mis and disinformation has been very Anglo-centric. But there is a whole world of content that needs to be studied. We are looking at um, transnational Asian American content. So we're specifically looking at the spread of misinformation and disinformation on channels like WhatsApp, which is heavily used in, um, I can definitely speak to the South Asian American or South Asian transnational community. So this is content that people are maybe not studying because it requires translation, but then the translations are often Eurocentric. So, so we're trying to understand what 
what are the motivations, why this misinformation spreads in these communities and how it may differ from um, studies of, of Eurocentric or Anglocentric misinformation. So I guess, uh, you know, at CTAP, we have a number of different projects that relate to this in, in some ways. Uh, I think the big ones that, that are coming next is, um, the first is really to try to understand the relationship between platforms and democratic backsliding, both in the US, but in many countries around the world. Um, it strikes me that, you know, post-2016, a lot of the discourse has, has very narrowly focused on social media uh, and on technology and not these larger political dynamics as they intersect with social media and technology. So I think it's putting the politics back in, um, which is a big challenge for the disinformation and misinformation community and the folks who are working on things like propaganda and the like. We're hosting a big event uh, with uh, George Washington uh, University on January 6th and 7th. Um, that has a set of public keynotes, but also research meetings um, to try to tease out um, how should we understand the attempted coup on January 6th? What lessons can we draw from it? And how can that inform public policymaking, but also the policies of platforms if they're going to play this institutional role preventing democratic backsliding being uh, moving forward? And then broadly, you know, I'm part of a number of different working groups that are taking up some big key questions that, to my mind, are sort of uh, at the forefront, trying to understand platforms' responsibilities and their roles with respect to democracy. And this is both in the U.S. and globally. But the first is how should platforms treat political elites? Um, should they be held to a higher standard, a lesser standard? Um, what should those policies be? So I'm working with various academics, civic integrity uh, leaders um, to try to put together some frameworks for um, what should those policies be? Again, both in the U.S. and globally, as Madhavi is pointing out, right, these are not U.S. only issues. I mean, we're seeing backsliding in countries around the world. We're seeing larger patterns of misinformation around the world. And then secondly, um, it's, it's more broadly an extension of everything that we've been doing, but um, what should platform policies and internal processes be with respect to working with campaigns? Um, how should campaigns be monetized? Um, should there be guardrails or limits around that? How transparent should they be? What sorts of disclosure do we need in 2022 and, and beyond um, for the ways that you know, politicians and other campaigns are using platforms? Um, what does the democratic public need? And how should we think about regulating them um, with respect to helping us produce uh, potentially healthy democratic outcomes. Well, I wish you both the best of luck with this. And I look forward uh, to seeing artifacts of all the work you've just described. So uh, Daniel Amadavi, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.